supported her. One from her family line will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south. But he will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. For the king of the north will muster another army, larger than the first. And after several years, he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. In those times, many will rise against the king of the south. The violent men among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the South will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the South and he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom. But his plans will not succeed or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them, but a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back upon him. And after this, he will turn back toward the fortresses of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he too will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask you this morning to open our eyes. Teach us truth. For so often we look to your word in passages such as this and we, we struggle. We, we want to understand, but we, we can't get our heads around it. I pray that this morning you would give us a sense of clarity. Knowing we don't have time to unpack every detail, I pray that you would give us an understanding of an overview that would lead us to make sense of what you've given to us. That it might set the stage for what you want to show us in the days to come. Father, above everything else, I pray that as we learn, as we listen, as we hear, we would hear your voice. And that we would see you removing all things to a place where the world would be pointed to the right time, the right moment, and the right place for the Redeemer to arrive. Father, teach us from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. What this really boils down to is war. War between the north and the south. This passage of scripture, these 20 verses, they don't break down evenly at all. In fact, they're very uneven. Two, two different sections examining four kingdoms. 
Medo-Persia and Greece in verses 1 through 4, and then Egypt and Syria in verses 5 through 20. The important thing for us to understand is that we're looking at these. Daniel is being shown these because of how they relate to the nation of Israel. And I hope that you'll come to understand that this morning. These kingdoms were going to impact God's people and what he was going to do in and through them for the world and in the world in the days ahead. It all starts when we open this chapter up by understanding that it's time for the reshaping of the political landscape. And it starts out talking about Medo-Persia and Greece. We, we begin in, in verse 1. And, and understand, these empires appear repeatedly throughout Daniel's lifetime. In chapter 2, you can go back and read about these empires. In chapter 7, you can read about these empires. In chapter 10, you can read about the empires. And now here we are in chapter 11, and they are here again. But when they're here, what we're doing is we look at them is beginning an understanding that God's protection, God's covering over a people, over a nation, is given by God. It is kept by God. It is all at God's discretion. People don't understand this. We don't understand this sitting in this room today. Now, many of us in our conversations, since we're in church, and we're talking about theological things, we say, oh, yeah, God's on the throne. God's in control. But the reality is that nations still today believe that their might is in their military. They still believe that their strength is in the sheer numbers of their people and their innovation and their technology. Not so, my friends. Strength comes from God. Verse 1 is a pivot point. The messenger, the angel, perhaps it's Gabriel, maybe it's not, is speaking to Daniel, ties this whole thing together with these words. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. This is two years prior to the vision that began in chapter 10. Now, a lot of people want to know, well, what's the big deal about the first year? I'm going to tell you what it is, all right? Now, remember last week I told you that Darius and Cyrus are the same guy. Two different names. One is his given name. One is his dynastic name. The name he was given when he ascended to the throne and became the king. But in the first year of his reign was also the year that he decreed that the Jews should return back to their homeland. The end of the 70 year exile to go back and reclaim Israel and begin the rebuilding process of their cities and particularly of Jerusalem, their capital city. The significance of this angelic messenger saying in that first year, I took my stand with him, could be a number of different things. Number one, though, I, I think in primary, it tells us he was the encourager. He was the support. He was the prompter of this pagan king to do exactly what God needed done in order to get his people back to their homeland. When we move from that verse to verse 2, we're embarking on a history lesson, folks. I love history, but I hate this lesson. <laughs> I, 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 for many years, I thought, you know, if God would turn me loose, I could go back to school and I could get a, a, another degree or something. Else. I, I could teach history. I, I love history. Oh, but this is overwhelming. This is, this is almost too much, but let's go back and, and let's look at it. Starting in verse 2, I tell you the truth, three more kings will appear in Persia. Talking about after Darius, after Cyrus. Three more kings will appear. Now these three kings we know from history are Cambyses, Smyrtus, 
and Darius. These three come after this Cyrus slash Darius that we know of. But then he says, and then a fourth, who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained the power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. We know from history who this fourth king is. This is Xerxes. This is the Xerxes that you've watched movies about, that you've read books and stories about. This is the Xerxes who invaded the nation of Greece. He won the battle of Thermopylae at great cost to his own military, but he couldn't have cared less. Six years later, Xerxes was defeated in the Battle of Salamis in 480 BC, basically ending the Persian Empire. That was, that was the swan song when they were defeated by the Greeks there. God used Persia to send Israel back where they were supposed to be. And then they were dismissed to the trash barrel of history. And out of that place, God passed the torch from Persia to Greece. And that's what we find happening here in verse 3. Then a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. Now history knows him, and we've been taught about him in school as Alexander the Great. God doesn't refer to him as great. He does not. He's a mighty king. But he's so full of himself, he'll do anything he wants to. He, he does as he pleases. But after he has appeared, his empire will be broken up. You see, Alexander never became great that everybody thought he was going to be. Because he died at 33 years old. Because of his excessive lifestyle, or whether you want to talk about the, the drunkenness and, and the, the debauchery, or whether you want to talk about the, the hardship of life by fighting campaign after campaign after campaign, it all took its toll. And at 33 years old, he died. When he died, all of his heirs were killed as well. He didn't have many, but the ones he had were put to death. So you read here, his empire will be broken up and parceled out. It will not go to his descendants. Well, what did it do? It went to the four winds of the heavens. Well, what are the four winds according to this school of thought? Y'all know the points on the compass, right? North, south, east, west, correct? Well, actually, west, east. But, yeah, I'm backwards from where you're at, so. Historians have written volumes about Alexander. God gives him a verse and a half. That's it. It talks about his kingdom being broken up to the four winds. We know that upon his death, after his heirs were put to death, that the empire was broken into four parts, and they were claimed by four generals of his. Cassander claimed Macedonia and Greece. Lysicomus, Thrace, and Asia Minor. The Ptolemies took over Egypt, and Seleucus reigned over Syria and Mesopotamia. Now, for the purposes of what we're going to be doing, so why and we'll be putting that map up there because I want you to get a visual. For the purposes of what we're doing, I want you to see the orange down in the bottom, bottom left, the area and region of Egypt moving up toward Israel. And then I want you to see the large green area 
See, these are the two empires. The orange is the Ptolemaic kingdom. The green is the Seleucid kingdom. And these become the two major kingdoms that arise out of what was the Greek empire. For all the world's writing of Alexander, he gets a verse and a half, and these two kingdoms now take over the narrative of the story. They are what is going to be talked about the rest of the way through this chapter as the south and the north. And I want us to spend our time looking at these two kingdoms and trying to figure out what's going on. We've already kind of dealt with Greece, Medo-Persia. One has gone, one has come, one has gone. And now we're down to this. Daniel saw the events that were going to occur between the Seleucids in the north, Syria, and the Ptolemies in Egypt in the south. And it's of great importance, and remember that visual you saw. Israel's caught right in the crossfire. God has sent his people back. They're rebuilding. They're, they're trying to, to make their nation again a great nation. And in the midst of it, they are getting run over back and forth by these two powers that are on either end of them. I, I want us to start by understanding God gave Egypt a great victory first. I've always thought this is ironic because who was it that God basically knocked to their knees in order to get Israel out of there and to the promised land? It was Egypt. You remember the story of the Exodus? And yet now when we have Egypt and we have Syria and these are the two major powers, guess who God gives the victory to? Egypt. He grants them victory. He puts them in power. But their king was unworthy. Let's go back and look at verses 5 through 12 for a minute. The king of the south will become strong. That's, that's Egypt. That's the Ptolemies. There's always a struggle for power, folks, in these types of kingdoms. Verse 6, after some years they would come allies talking about the two different powers there. The kingdom of the king of the south, or the daughter of the king of the south, will go to the king of the north and make an alliance. But she will not retain her power, and he, his power, will not last. In those days she'll be handed over together with her royal escort, her father, and the ones who supported her. Here's what basically we're talking about. And please understand, I'm fast-forwarding through so much time trying to get to the main points of this. I want you to understand you're not getting all the details. If you want all the details, it is out there. Study the history, okay? But here's basically what the two kingdoms look like if you look at them across the timeline. All of these different men come to power at different times. Now, right in the middle of that, if you look at both top and bottom, you see a dotted line going up right in the middle. Okay? That's right about 250 B.C. And right around 250 B.C. is where we find this marriage that's brokered in verse 6. All right? Berenice. Berenice, Ptolemy's daughter, is given in marriage to Antiochus, the king of the north. There's a problem. You know what the problem was? Antiochus was already married. Now, just out of curiosity, ladies, if you're married in this room, and your husband comes home one evening and says, hey, I want you to meet my new wife. How are you going to deal with that? Probably the same way. First wife, Laodicea. Plots. She poisons her husband. He dies. Once he's dead, now the power struggle is on between the two women, and she makes sure that Berenice and her, her male heir also are murdered. 
Well, of course, because she came from the south, now we have someone from the south who rises up and attacks the north. This is how this always plays out. And that's what we see happening as these verses unfold. Folks, can I just tell you something? The Ptolemies and the Seleucids are battling constantly throughout this time. From 246 BC, it goes on and on and on until finally in 217 BC, there is a battle at Raphia, which is in Palestine, and there is where we find that huge army from the north being wiped out. I mean, thousands upon thousands of Syrian troops died in that battle. And yet, here's what comes about out of that. The Egyptian king, still being a pagan, fails to acknowledge God. Did you notice what it said in verse 12? When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride, will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. He becomes proud. He was filled with pride, according to verse 11. Or verse 12, excuse me. Now, I want to ask you a question. Brothers and sisters of Christ who spend time in the Word, what happens to those who are filled with pride? Yeah, pride comes before fall. God will humble the proud, but He will exalt the humble. This man was filled with his pride, said, it's my army, it's my kingdom, it's my power. I'm the man. I rule this world. And God said, not so fast, my little friend. And broke him down. This is what happens. And so now we turn the page at verse 13. Guess what? Now the northern kingdom gets the torch. The king of the north will muster another army, larger than the first, the one that was destroyed. And after several years, he would, will advance with a huge army, fully equipped. It's about 15 years later. It's 202 B.C. Antiochus III of Syria invades Egypt with a large army. I mean, it is battle after battle. The Ptolemies are getting kicked all over their own country. In fact, Daniel even gets a point here. In verse 14, did you notice this phrase? The violent men of your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision. The warriors among the people of Israel who were absorbed inside of the Syrian kingdom also engaged in this warfare. And before the victory is won in Egypt, the Ptolemies, who had been ruling over Jerusalem and Israel, will wreak havoc before they have to withdraw to the south to protect themselves. It raged on three years. In 199 B.C., the Egyptians were decisively defeated at a place called Panium. If you look on maps today, you'll find Banium. It's the same place. It's up near Caesarea Philippi. It's in northern Israel. And the result of this war, its outcome, is that the Syrian Empire, the the Seleucids, they begin to reign over that entire region of the world, including, Daniel says, the beautiful land. You know what that phrase is, right? We saw it earlier in Daniel. It refers to Israel, the promised land, the beautiful land. But again, pride, arrogance, insolence, it all leads to the demise of a king and his kingdom. And while they're busy fighting each other, 
And while they've got their eyes locked on one another, north and south, and they're engaging in battle, they don't realize that back to the west, across the Mediterranean, there's a new power rising up in a place called Rome. What's happened here? Well, we'll unpack more of that next week, and we'll see what happens as a result of this. Because they're going to lose their ground. Say, all right, you spent all this time, you've done all this nonsense, now, what? No talk about God here. There's no talk about the, the coming of the anointed one. There's no mention of Messiah. All of those things have been shown to us in previous chapters, in previous visions, but in this vision, that doesn't exist. So why are we looking at this? I am so glad you asked. What should we learn? From this period of history. What, why would we just have a history lesson. In the middle of the word of God. If there's not something behind it. Well there is something behind it. And I'm going to explain it to you very quickly. Very easily. And if you're a writer. This is your time to write really 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 fast. Okay. Because here are the things we need to learn. And, and listen. I could, I could stay here for about like five hours. And tell you the things we should be learning from this lesson. But let me break it down into three simple Number one, it is God who is on the throne and controls all earthly matters. Folks, I, listen, I know we have elections and we put people in power, but I'm just going to tell you something. They're not really in power. They are puppets and they are placed in authority by God's own direction and God's own hand. Kingdoms will rise and fall, but it is God who never abandons his throne. Kings will be placed in exile. Kingdoms will come. They will go. God never abdicates his throne. He is never exiled. He is never overpowered and he never will surrender his authority. Strong men have always wanted us to believe that they are in control in our world. But make note of Daniel 4, 17. The most high sovereign is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and he gives them to anyone he wishes. It's God who's on the throne. And I want you to hear me. He has never, never, never come off of his throne and he never will. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two to be learned from this period of history is simply this. Glory, honor, and exaltation belong only to the Lord. You know, I've read the Word of God from beginning to end multiple times, and I know some of you have as well, and I'm just going to tell you something. All throughout the Word of God, we are told that God is worthy of praise. He is worthy of honor. His name is to be exalted. He is to be lifted high. He is the one we are to honor with our lives and with our lips and with our actions and with our words. He is the one. He is the only one. He is the only one. Even to the point that whenever they, they address Jesus and they call him good teacher, he says, who's good? Who's good besides God? Now, I understand something. He was God. He was trying to get them to see that, but that, that's beside the point. The point is, he would tell them, there is no man who is good. He said, well, I think I'm a pretty good person. Well, you may be a pretty good person, but I want you to know something. You're not righteous. God's word says there is none righteous. No, not even one. God is the only one. 
who deserves the glory and the honor and the praise of all creation, even to the point, I love this part of scripture so much, the triumphal entry when Jesus comes into the city and the people are singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And the rulers of the people came to Jesus and said, you need to tell your disciples to pipe it down. They don't need to be saying these things. He said, even if they're silent, the very rocks will cry out. Have you ever heard rocks sing? I haven't, but I bet they would do better than most Baptist churches. Especially if God gives the voice. I'm just telling you now. All of creation voices his praise. But there's a third lesson. And it's the most important one for us today. Simple but true. Man's sinful nature left unredeemed brings only death and destruction. Genesis chapter 4 King and Abel. Fast forward through all of scripture and all of history. Greed, lust, the longing for position, power, wanting attention. Over and over and over again, we see man doing wrong to man. Why? Because man's sinful nature is driven that way and left unredeemed, left unturned, left unchanged by the power of God. The only thing we know how to create is death and destruction. Why? Because we are children of Satan until we become children of God. And God says of Satan that he is a liar. He is a thief. He is a killer. He has come to steal and destroy. My friends, please hear me. If your heart is not broken for the land in which you live today, it never will be. In less than 24 hours, 30 of our fellow citizens have been slaughtered. Another half a hundred or more have been wounded and left devastated physically, emotionally, mentally by mass shootings in Texas and Ohio. I'm not here to play politics with you because I'm telling you guns aren't the issue. You can have a weapon out of anything. If a man knew what to do, and I think we've got some military folks in here who can tell me if I'm wrong or I'm right, but if somebody wanted to attack me and I got this in my hand, I could put them down pretty quick. Don't know how to do it, but I've seen it done in the movies. I'll give it a try. <laughs> you can make a weapon out of anything. Anything that's to hand. Well, people say, well, but it's about mental illness. No, it's not. And I'm not making light of weaponry, and I'm not making light of mental illness, but I'm going to tell you, we've got a problem, folks, and the problem is really simple. It is S-I-N, sin. That's where it's at. I'm going to tell you something. If you change hearts, if Jesus Christ is allowed to, to rule in this land, if he were to begin changing hearts one by one by one, I'm just going to tell you, weapons wouldn't be an issue. Mass shootings wouldn't be an issue. Mental illness won't be the issue. We'll be loving one another, caring for one another, taking care of the needs that are there and providing for one another in the best way we possibly can. I'm just going to tell you, it's about sin, and sin is our condition if we are left unredeemed. So what's the big deal? 
Did you hear what it said? Unredeemed. Let that word soak in for a minute. Because y'all are looking at me, you don't get it. Unredeemed. Still sinking. Unredeemed. Right in the middle of that is this word. Redeemed. Redeemed. There's only one Redeemer. His name is Jesus Christ. In our unredeemed state, we have nothing but death and destruction. But when we meet that Redeemer, Jesus Christ, we become a new creation. We're born again. We are given life abundant and eternal. Why? Because those are the gifts that God offers through His Son, Redeemer. See, what we need right now, more than laws, more than, more than clinics, more than facilities, what we need now is the power of Jesus Christ released into the hearts and lives of people here. There is a redeemer. His name is Jesus. I met him years and years and years ago. I was just a child. I, I hadn't killed anybody. Hadn't sold any drugs. Hadn't prostituted myself or pimped anybody. Oh, by the way, I still haven't done any of those things. <laughs> I'm just telling you that to tell you. He redeemed me and delivered me from what I wouldn't become. If I'd stayed on my normal course. He changed me. From the inside out, he changed me. Perfect? Absolutely not. But he changed me. And he made me a child of God. And many of you in this room can say exactly the same thing. You met that Redeemer. He changed you. Listen, you may not have been caught up in all kinds of bad stuff, but you were headed there, and you probably would have wound up there if it weren't for the fact that he grabbed you and pulled you out of that and made you something different. And maybe you weren't there. And he redeemed you. Wow. Folks, there's only one. And I know the world wants to tell you there are a multitude of ways that you can find happiness and that you can find life and that you can, you know, be religious, be spiritual. That's also meaning be lost, go to hell. Turn over a new leaf. Start living differently. Try it yourself. Go to hell. Jesus said the best. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You want life? You want hope? You want forgiveness? You want eternal glory? You want to know what the blessing really is? You only find it by coming to the Father through His Son, the one Redeemer. Learn this lesson from Him. 
history. We're all sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And my friends, the wages of sin is death. So man in his sinful nature, left unredeemed, brings only death and destruction. But don't ever stop halfway through that last verse. <clears throat> the wages of sin is death. But, ah, I love that word. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, the Redeemer. Do you know him? Have you met him? Have you surrendered your life to him? Oh, listen. This is not just a history lesson. This is God revealing to us that he was moving in the events of nations and men in order to keep his timeline moving so that everything would be in perfect order for his son to arrive, for the Redeemer to come, and for the atoning sacrifice to be made so that we might have life and have life abundant and eternal. I got it. I got mine, and I'm so thankful for it. If you haven't got yours, I want you to know this morning you can have it. If he's calling you, if he's drawing, if you're saying to yourself, I need that relationship. I don't have that. I, I don't know exactly what he's talking about, but I want some of that. Today you can have it. The invitation is closed. Would you call out to Jesus? Would you confess your sin? Just ask him to forgive you, to take over your life. You need help? You're not sure how to do it? That's why I'm here. I'd love to help you. Keep your eyes. Keep your eyes on the sky, my brothers and sisters. The Jesus who came, the one redeemer, he's coming again. Don't miss it. Let's bow our heads together. In just a moment, we're going to stand together and sing a song of surrender, commitment, of invitation. I call it that because I want to invite you this morning to look to God. If you need this morning to confess to Him and receive His forgiveness, to let Him make you a new creation, I invite you to do it. If you're not sure what to do or how to do it, if you'd like some help, I invite you to come in a moment when we stand and begin to say, take your hand and say, preacher, I want that relationship. I will not embarrass you. I will not put you on the spot, but we'd love to visit with you and show you from the Word of God how you can become a child of God today. <clears throat> Maybe you listened to those three lessons and you said, wow, that just almost summarizes my life. Maybe there's something that needs to be changed in your relationship between you and God. That relationship has been established, but you haven't grown in it. You've not become a growing, vibrant disciple of Jesus. Something's wrong. Can you settle that with him today? Do you need help? Let us help you. Listen, Christianity is not meant for us to just walk through alone. It's meant for us to do it together. Would you let someone come alongside you and help you get what the Father's trying to take you? Whatever you need to do, I pray. You'll do it. If you need help, come and let us know. Above everything, have a conversation with and let him tell you the truth about who you are and who he wants you to be. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. It's so difficult sometimes. Trying to make sense out of hundreds of years compressed into just 
Father, the truth is revealed. Mankind left to his own devices, left to his own sinful nature, does nothing but bring death, destruction, wreak havoc in his life and in his world. Father, I pray right now that we would not be left to our own devices, but today we would understand our need to run into your arms, to surrender control, to let you have your way in our lives. Father, I thank you for who you are and all that you do. I, I just pray that you would help us to open our eyes and see the need around us and understand that that need doesn't begin somewhere else. It begins within our own lives and our own existence. It moves outward from there, Father. Once you've touched our lives and changed us, you've given us the answer. But you expect us to share it, to give it away. Father, I pray for us in this room now. There's some here who don't know you. Perhaps today your spirit's drawing and calling them, helping them to understand that they need to meet this Redeemer I'm talking about. Father, I pray that they would hear your voice and respond. I pray for my brothers and sisters who perhaps have skipped over parts of Scripture in their heart and, and you're drawing them back and saying, look, I'm trying to show you something. Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds that are open to comprehend your truth. Father, above everything else, I pray that you would raise up in this place the people who understand and realize that the days are short and growing shorter. And that we must be on mission to make Jesus known here and everywhere we are. Father, have your way in our lives. Speak to us, call us, teach us, change us. For your glory, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.